Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Golf Play Podcast. We are so happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much for listening. There's a little bit of a laugh there because this is the first time that we've ever recorded a full podcast and scrapped the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. I was I was ha- really happy with the podcast, but I think I may we may have messed up a, a fundamental point. We'll see. We're gonna mess up because we're talking a lot about the election today. Yeah, we so we I actually think it was good too, but I think for me, I'm so sensitive on these topics. And I'm like, I only want to release this if we feel 100% confident. Yeah. And there's so many terms and things that have, you know, the internet, especially everything remakes itself every day, it seems. So um, yeah, we, 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 to, to stop hiding the ball, we use the term social, I use the term social justice warrior persistently as a good thing um, and saying you should strive to be that. But we just kind of got confused about whether that term actually has fully gone to mean what the opposite of what it means. So we're just re-recording because it's election eve and much like Christmas, it's a lot like Christmas Eve, except um, you might get a gift or you might come down and have to open up a bag of shit. Well, I think the thing is, is even if we do get a gift this year and for us and for the stability of the world at large, that's a Biden win. The I think there may be some like civil unrest some political unrest. Like, I think it's not going to I think it's going to take a little bit of while a time for this gift to actually play out. Yeah, I mean, it's such a time of anxiety and worries, you know, like I follow some really amazing scholars who are like, they think Trump's going to declare victory no matter what happens tomorrow, you know? And that's obviously like an existential crisis to all of us, because I think, you know, even if we understand the, some of the the evils that may have been a part of America's founding and are still a part of America, like there is this overarching ideal that like we can strive to be better. We can embody love in our policies and all this stuff. And like, it is on trial to the max right now at this election. So, you know, this is like stress. It's stress. We're seeing the anxiety manifest in many different ways. I mean, for us, it just manifested in the fact that we recorded a whole 30 yeah, minute yeah. podcast when our lives are already busy and I'm recording a whole new one. I'm like shirtless, about to go pantsless because I got so hot from like nerves recording the first one. I'm seeing it in athletes' logs too. Yeah. So coaching this week has been interesting because athletes are expressing anxiety about, you know, about the uncertainty coming up and that's manifesting in running. It's manifesting in their work life, manifesting in sleep, just kind of across the board. But I think what I've been telling athletes this week is just cut yourself some slack, yeah. like whether that's taking a mental health day work, taking some decompression time to turn off social media, to turn off the phone, to just like throw your phone in the corner of a room and forget about it. Yeah, it is so stressful. So if you're feeling that, just know you are seen. And honestly, it's just probably a sign that you're thinking about the world enough. Like often with our stresses, like, you know, we can do these mindfulness techniques as we talked about meditation, where you contextualize them and be like, I am more than this. I am the awareness behind these stresses. But right now, I think when you get to existential stresses, it's more about like, yeah, this is high stakes. This is not winners or losers. This is like what we stand for as a society. Like like I said, love is on trial. And, and it's particularly high stakes for certain people. Yeah, too. yeah, like, exactly. I mean, I think like it's it hits different people in different ways yeah. across the board. But, I mean, black people to the, to the max, any minority, women, um, you know, anyone that isn't rich, um, you know, I, I just think it's one of those complicated times in history where, you know, hopefully we look back 20 or 30 years from now and be like, that was a turning point. You know, that, that that was the reckoning that was needed. That was the fire that burned away, you know, things. And, and, and what built back was this truly honest thing where we're willing to say Black Lives Matter, you know, willing to use our platforms to say and do whatever we do, have to to fight for social justice. But, you know, it could also be opposite. Like, we don't know, like, what happens. And that's the heart. That is anxiety. Anxiety is just mapping certainty onto an uncertain world. And I think we're all trying to grasp that little cause of certainty, whether it's Nate Silver or, um, you know, maybe drinking a little bit 
tomorrow to cope. I think for me, what's been the hardest part is trying to find that balance between educating myself on these topics and like really staying informed by reading and engaging on the topic quite a bit and balancing the mental health component of that too, making sure that it doesn't become too much. How I've handled that actually is by following, I, the other week I followed just like a hundred different comedians (laughs) on Twitter and my Twitter feed is fantastic now because I find that I, I absorb information a lot better when it's through the lens of comedy and comedians have a great way of presenting information and, you know, just that like entertaining light, but it's also informative yeah. too, at the same time. It reminds me of that that quote. I'm not sure who said it, but that Republicans can't write a joke and liberals can't take one. <laughs> that's a fantastic, that's um, a fantastic quote. But yeah, I mean, I think like trying to find the lightness that is there is so key right now. So, you know, if you are sad, if there is no like light right now, that is okay. And you're loved and it's understood. Um, but if you're, if it's possible, like to still be, pay attention to what's around you, like we're trying to do that with ourselves, like cut ourselves slack, like for me, for messing up the first podcast or like, you know, listen to each other and be present with each other and, um, know that, you know, tomorrow is a big deal. The election day is a big deal or whenever you're listening to this, it will have been a big deal, but it's just, a part of a continuous struggle that will continue. And we need to also keep our energy for it because it's going to keep going. Speaking of cutting yourself slack. So we watched SNL last yeah, yeah. night. Uh, so Saturday Night Live, it's a popular, we watch, we try to watch that every week in our household when it's on. And John Mulaney was hosting last night. He is typically A++ top of his game. Yeah, he is just so polished. So polished, so smooth. I, I wish I could do a, a John Mulaney impression because he's a highly impressionable comedian, yeah. but I can't. So I will leave that to you to do that for your own self. But last night he was, he had some breaks in his set and he like wasn't quite on his form. And what I've heard a lot of comedians talking about right now is the fact that they don't have they, you know, they're not performing every night to live audiences. And when they do go on set, they're, they feel like they're less polished, yeah. they're bombing, they don't feel quite as good about their performance. But for me, it's actually like, I, I have so much empathy for that, but it's also like, it makes them human. And I think yeah. that's a beautiful part of embracing what we're all going through right now, which is the struggle of uncertainty, the struggle of showing up and doing new things, trying to figure out our way in this 2020, like different world. And seeing John Mulaney go through that live on Saturday yeah. Night Live was helpful for I me. I mean, John Mulaney stammering is the equivalent of of like us dealing with existential crises, right? Or like being depressed because it's so rare for him, at least from what I've ever seen. And he went on and it was amazing. He It was, it was amazing- fantastic. And by stammering, I mean, John Mulaney is just typically oh, like it, yeah. the smoothest person. So it, you could hardly even tell it, but was, it was stammering, but it's different from of the last six or seven months of like the world has been turned upside down with COVID. And then it also brought home to roost, like all these, that's an old man phrase, um, brought home to roost all these like terrible societal injustices that have been there the whole time and made up so that no longer can they be ignored by anyone. And so, you know, in that stammer, like maybe it's a little too metaphorical, but I saw a lot of like, man, this is a tough time, right? And it's tough for 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 everyone. And so if you're listening to this, um, you know, we really just want to emphasize that like big hug, um, you know, we're going to talk about some complex topics in the rest of this podcast, but like, it, it's, it's totally great. You know, I, I remember in 2008, um, like I was in college in New York at the time. And um, that was, I remember when o- Obama was officially announced as the winner and everyone poured out into the streets. Um, I saw later pictures all the way from downtown up Broadway to Harlem and everyone mixed together. And, you know, Columbia is such this weird place because it's at 116th street, which is right at the start of Harlem, even though it's totally isolated and it's own little thing. And all the communities mixed together, everyone's hugging and cheering. And it was just this moment of joy. And it was like, oh, the future is so bright and hopeful. 
And obviously it's not a straight line, you know, and it never was. And it just felt like that maybe to my college brain. It's funny how these election time periods are, they serve as these like pivotal moments in time when we can look back and be like, I remember exactly where I was on that election day. So when you speak of 2008, I was a senior in high school and was too young to vote. (laughs) So I remember I had this amazing political science teacher and she, shout out to teachers right now. I think teaching is a a really hard profession right now, especially in the COVID days. And I look back on that time and think about, I wasn't really interested in government or politics or any of these things. Yeah. And she emphasized that it was a, a like a foundation for our lives, for our country's for our country's progress. And it made me care about these topics. And I remember after the 2008 election going in the next day and my teacher cried. Yeah. And it was just like one of those really meaningful, it made me just realize the power that that you know our government has, that politics have, and it invested me in it. And also the power teachers have. Yeah. Because I still think, I'm talking about her on this podcast That's 18 so cool. years later. I love that so much. And it gets back to how- like, 18 years, 12 years later, I can't do math. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is our second time recording. We're basically like punch drunk. Um, you know, it brings back that ignoring politics or not thinking about these issues, as much as that would be great to say, that's a pr- ultimate privilege, you know? And so it is important to think about them, but to hopefully keep it in context um, with your own life and being present for your loved ones, though, you get a pass on the next few weeks in particular. Um, you know, and that, that comes to 2016 when in the few weeks following the election, um, in training logs, like I saw more depression than I've ever seen. You know, we lost actually a substa- like a few athletes after who were just like, I can't run anymore. So, you know, that that's those were people I think that fully understood the stakes. And it's like, I love that so much that you're able to invest and you're able to to understand empathy to the true point that like this isn't this is this is life or death to some people, you know, especially like whether it's immigrants or you know black people or or others or transgender p- people. It's like this is this is everything. And so um you know, in the face of that, it's just about like fighting for social justice. Um, you know, it's about like doing what we can with the platforms we have to try to move the ball forward just a little bit. The point that you make about the platforms we have, yeah. I think is a foundational one because it's for me, what I've really thought about. And I, this you know, reflects yeah. the fact that we're recording this again is I am uncomfortable talking about these issues unless I feel like it's perfect or it's yeah. a perfect representation. And I'm trying to get better and better at that because like, if I wait towards perfection, I'm never going to help shift that, you know, shift that momentum yeah. forward and just trying to work it into like the passions that I have. So that's like running, writing this podcast and even like, I've seen you do it with research and medicine. Yeah, yeah. And or like just the small interactions with family, with friends. But uh, it definitely does. Like I'm trying to like throw away that element of perfection with it. Well, it's like training that you have to start where you are. Like I think a lot of athletes struggle with that sometimes. It's like, well, how do I come back from this injury? Or how do I do anything like this? Like, no, you just have to, you know, one little run at a time. And so for us, for example, like that's all we really like can talk about with expertise. It's like the podcast is a place, our coaching, Megan's research, my lawyer stuff. But like, you know, it's one little step, you know, we're not going to solve racism. Um, but hopefully what we can do is just bring a little bit of love into the world with the people that we're, we're at right now. And a heck of a lot of learning because I think with everything, it's like each step along the way, I'm learning so much and that's been something that's been helpful. And it's kind of like creating this like feed forward mechanism. I love that. And it it is a fight though. And I think that, you know, all this talk that we have of love and joy and accepting others, that, that love stops at the very edge of people like, in in taking away rights um, and, and wanting less expansive um, equality for everyone. So, um, you know, what we'll say is just we're all going to have to fight 
and what that fight looks like for for some it'll be taking the streets for others it'll be arguing in front of the supreme court um you know for some it'll be recording a podcast or talking to your family but whatever it is just you know keep that keep that energy going and we got this no matter what happens tomorrow and the days after we got this um and so with that we're gonna we're gonna talk about three stories that have like each themes you want to do it let's do it awesome so um the first one is hope um and so this starts with a little five seven boy in some high school in the northeast who wanted to play basketball and he wanted to play at the top level he was that gangly kid in all the basketball school photos that you're like eh, he's probably yeah. not going to progress very well in this basketball world and it definitely seemed like that like his mom came to his basketball games to you know he was on the bench and then he would came occasionally come off to tape it and it's so funny because i remember my dad doing the same thing when i was playing baseball um but we come to tape it and the principal one time pulled her in the side and it's like you think he's going to go to college with those recruiting videos you're taking? I don't think so. But what do you know? So he went from 5'7 as a sophomore to 6'7 as a senior. So he had this great growth spurt during high school. And he, but still during that time, he wasn't He getting, wasn't a star. He's he, like, I didn't know how to run. Like there was just too much arms and legs going on. When you on. grow that fast, running becomes very awkward. Yeah. But uh, so he wasn't being recruited by colleges. So he decided to take a fifth year in high school. I've never heard of anyone yeah. taking a fifth year in high school, especially just to, to, you know, to think about like a college yeah, these scholarship. Prep schools. Um, and then went on to play um, division three at Williams. Yeah, yeah. So he got to Williams College. Not exactly a basketball powerhouse, not a sports powerhouse. A fantastic academic school, though I might argue they'd be good at Quidditch. <laughs> they'd be totally rock stars at Quidditch, I bet. Um, and so he gets to Williams and you know, no one goes to the NBA from D3. So this isn't even a consideration at this point. He just puts his head down and grinds. Sure enough, he's the freshman of the year at D3. Great. That doesn't really amount to much. Um, I'm sure the freshman of the year at D3 is like a scrub at most D1 schools. Um, but Fortunately, his coach at Williams was friends with uh, John Beeline, I think, Byline, I can't pronounce the name, um, at Michigan, and gave him a gave him a recommendation. And it took that recommendation just to get a walk-on spot in Michigan, the right to be able to pay $50,000 a year or whatever to go to Michigan. But he worked so hard that he earned a scholarship over that point of time and became the sixth man on Michigan's team. Never started, but yeah, Michigan, yeah, not won, even a starter. Michigan won a national title during this time. And he, he went on to average 9.2 points per game, which is, I mean, that's okay, but it's definitely yeah, yeah. not fantastic. Yeah, there's probably a thousand people that average nine points a game in college each year and only like a few that make the NBA. So, you know, he's, he's graduated here. He's worked his butt off. And what's going to happen? Is he going to get drafted? Of course not. Um, draft passes, he's not selected. And he's just like, okay, well, I want to try to do this. And so there's an NBA minor league now called the G League. And he's looking for looking for tryouts, looking for tryouts. Fortunately, he had this coach that would vouch for him. And so he's able to get into a tryout with the Miami Heat. And the scout there says, just in awe, it was the unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was a display of shooting that absolutely lit the floor on fire. And he and the scout was just like, I am so glad that I was the only one there that got to see this. Um, so the Miami Heat sign him and he goes to the G League yet again, another chance where like there's tons of players in the G League. Most of them never make the NBA. Um, and eventually he's called up to the Miami Heat and gets to be a scrub. But he just keeps grinding and keeps shooting and eventually becomes a starter on the Miami Heat and becomes a starter on the NBA uh, Finals Miami Heat and doesn't just become a starter, hits more threes in his first 80 games than anyone in NBA history. What? From Williams to that? How does that even happen? 
And guess who this is? This is Duncan Robinson. So looking back on this story, it seems to me like it's a very Malcolm Gladwell story. Yeah. Like you can see luck intersecting at so many points during this time. Like, I mean, he grew a foot yeah. during high school. How many people do that? Then he went on to play in the NBA, which previously, I mean, the NBA now is focused heavily focused on three-pointers. But in the past, like yeah, he would never have Six had years ago, he would experience. never have probably been in the NBA. But what I think about that, though, is, is that it's really the grit and the power of belief and hope and showing yeah. up that allowed him to actually access that luck. It's like he was riding, a, like doing a bike ride on Zwift and he got that like feather sticker at the yeah. top and he hit it and just, you know, put out 500 watts in the process because he was truly maximizing what he was given because he just showed up every day and had grit. And it's funny to think about how many situations in, we, in which we look back and we're like, wow, we're so lucky. Yeah. But really it's like, no, it's like the toughness and belief that got you to that yeah, point. Yeah, and we talk all the time about shooting your shot. Duncan Robinson very literally shot his shot over and over and over again. He had a high school coach that said, if you don't shoot, I'm going to bench you. And Eric Spolstra in the NBA made him do wind sprints every time he didn't shoot, said that is selfish. And sure enough, he just kept shooting, kept shooting, kept shooting. And that's why Duncan Robinson represents belief. And he kept believing and believing and believing. I mean, how many people take a fifth year in yeah. high school just to play basketball at Williams? And that's the lesson for everyone. Just like, just keep believing. Even if you're not going to be an NBA player, you never know where it leads. And you never know where that intersection with luck is going to lie. Great. Um, so second story, is all about toughness. Um, we're going to flash forward in this story to a 34-year-old on a new team leading them into the playoff hunt in the NFL. He drops back for a pass um, and he's scrambling around, gets tackled. All of a sudden, the stadium goes silent and other players on the uh, players on the other team are seen crying, heads in heads in their hands, just totally um, broken up about what's just happened. A brutal injury. So I've spent, I've worked in the emergency room for many shifts. I still can't watch this injury on tape because it gives me nausea. Yeah. So he suffered a compound fracture in his leg, but that wasn't just it. Two days post-op, he went on to develop necrotizing fasciitis, um, which is a life-threatening condition. He developed sepsis, almost died from having this compound fracture. Necrotizing fasciitis process. doesn't exactly sound good. It actually like and whenever an athlete has plantar fasciitis from now on, I'm like, at least it's not necrotizing. Let's keep it in context. Um, but yeah, so how many surgeries did he He went have? on to have 17 different 17 surgeries. surgeries. And yeah, I mean, they were just like, we're in life-saving mode now. Like, let, he might, he will most likely lose this leg. He'll certainly never be able to play sports like that again. Um, like, all hope was lost when it comes to this, like, big uh, picture stuff. It was just about trying to get him through the surgeries. But at age 34, after 14 years of playing in the NFL, he killed, still kept the dream alive of going back to return yeah. to play to football, which to me is, like, remarkable because like most people in that situation would be like, yeah, I had a good career. I'm yeah. good. This like this necrotizing fasciitis was a good way to go. Well, out. one of his former coaches, John Harbaugh said like one of those football-y uh, phrases, like he's tough as a bag of nails or a box of monkeys or whatever they say. Um, and sure enough, that toughness fueled him so well because I can't imagine the pain he went through. He talked about it a little bit in the documentary we saw, but um, you know, it was, will I be able to live? Yes. I'm going to do this. And he, he was able to do that though. You know, obviously not always a choice or anything. Um, then will I be able to walk? And sure enough, he worked his butt off to be able to walk. And he's like, will I be able to step sideways? Toughness every single step of the way. And eventually, he was able to get to the point that he wasn't just able to walk. He was able to run again. And he was able to actually get back to the field two years later this year for the Washington Redskins. Um, and it was just the coolest thing. Except in his first game, he did not play fantastic to say the least. So he was sacked five times in the game. And what I love about this though is, is like it could have been a perfect Cinderella story if he came back and yeah. threw that hail mary for the for the win, and he didn't. But I think it that actually adds more to the story than if he came back and had a perfect game because it's like no, he has been through so much, and that's just like emblematic of all of the different times that yeah. he stepped up and failed and had to keep rallying through all of it. Well, his quarterback rating. Uh, so for those who don't know, it's like zero to one hundred. 
um, with most people, the average being 50, his quarterback rating was 3.3, which is basically, I mean, I would do a little bit worse, but not that much worse because you couldn't do that much worse. Like, even if you just like, honestly, I think he would have done a little better if you just like took a knee every time. Um, but you know, what it gets back to is that toughness here as exemplified by Alex Smith, quarterback for the Washington Redskins is not about coming back and winning. It's about falling down and trying to get back up. You know, it's just about trying, trying and trying to get back up. And inspiring others in the process. Yeah. So I think what he's most well known for also is just his leadership on the field. So Colin Kaepernick and Patrick Mahomes both sat behind him and then came in under his expertise and under learning from Alex Smith and had incredible careers, Career, yeah. great, great players. And I think that's just as much a part of his legacy as the Cinderella story of coming back and be able to walk on the field again. Yeah, the toughness is lifting others up too. So, you know, you're lifting yourself up as much as you can, literally like getting up off the, off the floor because we're all going to be knocked down all the time. And he was so gracious in that process yeah. because both Kaepernick and Mahomes replaced him. And he yeah. was like, you know, this is just part of the process. They're great players. I'm teaching him the game. Awesome. So toughness from Alex Smith. Um, last last one. It's a little bit different. Uh, this one is on dreams and dreaming big. Um, so th this woman, she grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and she faced a ton of different obstacles, S super hard. But you know what? She worked her butt off, had these big dreams, um, became an EMT technician, was working overnight shifts like crazy, had these huge dreams of becoming, um, you know, getting a nurse, right? It'd be getting into the medical field. And she was writing her, her dreams all over. And I thought what was coolest of all is people said she was so full of life and she lifted everyone else up around her. When you see videos of her and pictures of her, it's so clear that she's that person in the room that is radiant, that everyone yeah. kind of gravitates to because of her warmth that's so obvious. Yeah. And that's what life's about is being that type of person whenever you can. And she embodied that. And it's so amazing. She had these big dreams. And then one night, um, three plainclothes police officers walked into her house and killed her. Um, and this, you know, you probably know is Breonna Taylor. And we wanted to end with this just because, you know, we're going to this election, which is a turning point in many different ways, but in many different ways, it's a continuation of, of problems that the country's had for a long time. And that, you know, in the process of fighting for social justice, um, like, you know, let's have belief, let's have toughness, let's really dream. And let's remember the people that, you know, had all those things and weren't able to make it to. And yeah. that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow with voting, but that's also decades to come because that's how long it's going to take to fight for these things. Heck yeah. Um, you want to get on to our running topics? Let's talk about running for the last eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, this will be a little bit jarring. Um, do you want to read the, the question? Sure. This is from CB and it's on intervals. I'd like to get the five to 10 minute breakdown on speed work. There are so many different types of speed work options, including hill sprints, hill intervals, flat strides, fartleks, tempos. Oh my. I'm still fuzzy on the how and why of each type. For example, if I want to get faster on flats, what speed work should I focus on? Also, what speed work facilitates faster uphill running? I know uphills won't feel easier and that too much climbing actually slows you down, but I'd love to get faster on uphills and be able to run uphill for longer amounts of time. Or is it just best to be always switching up the different types of speed work? Great reading. Um, yeah, and I think see, that's an amazing question. It really gets to like the heart of training theory. So we're going to take a step back first and go to first principles of running versus cycling and why that training is different. So in, in biking, it's aerobic and musculoskeletal dominant. Um, whereas in running, there's a much heavier neuromuscular component. So on biking that you have a machine putting out the power for you in running, you are the machine. And thank gosh for that, because yeah. bike workouts are hard. They make running seem way easier in comparison, at least in my opinion. And so that neuromuscular component, I'm glad it's in running. Oh my God. Me too. I, I, I started as a cyclist and, um, I remember getting so nervous for the workouts after a few years that eventually I just burned out entirely. I was like, this sport is not for me. If I I'm not excited about what I'm doing each day. Um, and I think it gets back to how hard biking can be because you're just, 
you are an aerobic system with legs and you were just like, how much power can I put out? Six months into our, our relationship when we were dating, yeah. we went on our first bike ride <laughs> and you, I mean, we were just going for a joy ride in Valley Porch Park in Pennsylvania with like very small hills. And you were so nervous. I'm like, David, we're just going out to ride. And you're like, no, you don't understand. Like biking is hard. Oh my God. In the summer of 2012, we were both out here in Colorado and we bike, bike a lot for fun because I, um, you know, was getting into it a little bit. And I remember she didn't understand just how big of a difference, like wide tires made on a mountain bike. So she was riding this big 29er knobby tired mountain bike. And I was riding a mountain bike with like kind of commuter tires. And that whole summer I was like, oh yeah, I'm struggling back here. Um, <laughs> she still whooped my butt. But, um, so basically biking is about maximizing this aerobic stimulus. You'll see a lot of work. that's like two by 20 minutes hard, where essentially athletes are going to the well every time. Phil Gaimon, who's written amazing books. Um, if you're interested in biking draft animals and pro cycling on $10, a day um, talks about they, when he was training with, I believe Tom Danielson, they would do three day cycles. First day, like all out tempo or intervals. Second day, three by 15 minute or similar intervals. Third day, long ride of hundred miles. And they would just repeat that cycle over and over. Obviously a runner can't do that. And that gets back to the neuromuscular element of running the biomechanical element where you are the machine and eventually your machine will break down. If you aren't careful, the bike can take anything, but your body can't. And I think it adds a fun added layer to it because like, you're not just putting out like Watts numbers. Like there's yeah. so much more added complexity into it. And you're, you're thinking about, you know, combining all of these different systems, the aerobic system, the neuromuscular system, mus the musculoskeletal system. And it becomes kind of a fun thing to play with. Over I love time. that. It's like a gumbo. You don't know. There's a bunch of different ingredients that can work. Um, and they're also different for everyone. Yeah. And that gets back to this, um, my favorite study, um, which was in 2018 in physiology reports, uh, 20 trained runners did 10 sessions of five to 30 seconds, five to 10 by 30 second, uh, strides in a 40 day training cycle. Super interesting part of that is that they also dropped volume by 36%. So the athletes are doing a little bit more speed and a lot less volume, um, which we were talking about why that is probably to equalize stress, not exactly sure. But the fascinating thing is the outcomes. Um, the 10K performance of these athletes improved by on average 3.2%, even with less aerobic training. So their aerobic systems weren't actually even the same. They were slightly worse. There was a non-significant decrease in VO2 max and lactate threshold in this time. So what are we measuring? These athletes are getting faster while their aerobic systems are, are getting a little worse. You would probably never see that in cycling. And so what we're probably seeing there is this complex stew that Megan was getting into. Neuromuscular system, biomechanical system, feeding back into aerobic system. It's like, whoa, that's super cool. And it can happen so easily. It can happen so much more naturally maybe than you would in a sport like cycling. What I love about this study too, and well, actually what I don't love about this yeah. study is that it was only 20 athletes. It was 14 men and six women, of course. <laughs> we can talk about that at a later point, but uh, they were trained athletes. So I think that's interesting too, because like, even if you, you know, have trained for a long period of time, like there can be a lot of room for improvement if you haven't done these larger speed builds, or if you, you haven't done speed builds in a necessarily focused way. Yeah. Like when we talk about learning to run, go fast in cycling, we might be talking about learning to suffer or being willing to do that. In running, when we talk about learning to run fast, we're actually talking about learning, about developing these, these complex systems, um, neuromuscular, uh, all this other stuff into one hole where running takes less effort. And that's, that's the basis of all the old training systems. Arthur Lydiard back in the sixties, where you talk about base that introduce Hills, then have like speed most of the year with specific training at the end. Uh, Renato Canova has built off that. Um, and that kind of brings us to what, how we recommend runners to do it, um, for starting where you are. So there's four big principles. The first is that the aerobic system is still the most important, even if, um, you know, it might not be dominant later on, like after you've, as you're wanting to run fast. So most of your running should be easy, no matter what. 
And I think it's important to define what easy is. Yeah. And so developing some metric that works for you, we've talked about this before, whether it's a hurry monitor or relative perceived exertion, something along those lines to have a formal definition of easy for yourself is helpful. But I also would add the caveat too, is, is that if you're just getting into running or if your mileage is lower, it's not necessarily, this doesn't necessarily need to be a hard and fast rule that like, you know, aerobic running needs to be truly easy all the time. Yeah. It doesn't need to be aerobic threshold like <laughs> every single time you're out there. And in fact, um, Glidiard and Canova both allow for substantial amounts of steady running and tempo running in their base periods. So you're allowed to, on your easy runs, you can increase the pace sometimes. That can be a part of your speed work is these unstructured increases in pace. Um, but that's the basic aerobic part. That's the first principle. The second is that we liked athletes and building off of what Lydia did to start with hills. Um, that hill strides we've talked about before are really powerful as are shorter hill intervals, usually three minutes or less, um, with, with adequate recovery that really develop the musculoskeletal system, give you that strength. And then once you have that musculoskeletal system, that's when you can then start thinking about developing that neuromuscular output. So transitioning to flatter strides, keeping the, the, the speed rolling on, on flat terrain, um, working that into moderation. So can still continuing that focus on hills and then also layering in, um, that neuromuscular yeah. system. And we well. like athletes to do maybe just one or two structures workouts a week the one of the workouts can be a tempo in a long run or intervals and that those intervals usually can be pretty short like 10 to 30 minutes of faster running split up by recovery periods it doesn't really matter that much to your body it just needs to get some of the dials turned it doesn't need them to be turned the exact right way at the exact right time even as coaches like we want that certainty it's never going to be there i love that training is never about perfection that gets that gets yeah. taken away very quickly but i think the fourth and last point on this topic is that once you have that neuromuscular once you've layered in the hills and then the flats that's when you can start thinking about adding in some of these longer intervals some of the harder tempos kind of getting fancy with training yeah, that so might start to bit. look like the bike workouts that we talked about about where you do these 20 to 30 minute, like things that if you weren't efficient would just make you good at doing less efficient things. Whereas once you get efficient, you can start to have fun and really push the aerobic system to the max. That's where super compensation comes in. Like we talked about last week and all of this stuff will build your running economy. And all the studies show that running economy is what translates into a better climber. So focus on this well-rounded, um, speed emphasis and you'll get faster. And I think, um, keeping it fun throughout too. So we have, we have athletes very rarely do anything on the track. Like we think that doing workouts on, on roads, doing workouts on trails, unless yeah. you're racing specifically in the track, but few athletes that we coach are, um, and even like soccer fields. Like I yeah. love doing soccer field diagonals. So striding the diagonals and jogging the flats. And it can be really short. It doesn't have to be much. And, um, I think that that might actually be a good segue into back to the election real quick, that it's, it can be short and it doesn't have to be much. Like, you know, we're all trying to fight for social justice and, and we want that to be at center stage. Um, start where you are and like intervals, embrace the discomfort of it, right? Like it doesn't have to be the hardest thing you've ever done in the world, but we need to start now. We need to keep pushing on election day. Um, and honestly, every single day after. And being comfortable with not being perfect too, and just doing it. Guys, we got this. Let's fight. Let's do this. Woohoo. Go Thanks, America. Everyone. Bye.